Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Most of us have no idea how others see or process their experiences, and that can make relationships hard, whether with intimate partners, family, friends, or in our professional lives. The Enneagram can help us understand the motivations and dynamics of these different personality types, unlocking the sometimes mystifying behavior in others and in ourselves. Susan Stabile is my guest. Her generous, sometimes humorous, and always insightful approach to relationships using the Enneagram reveals why all the types behave as they do. Her newest book, The Path Between Us, offers help in fostering more loving, mature, and compassionate relationships with everyone in our lives. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I interviewed you maybe a year and a half ago for another podcast I used to do called The Mockingcast. And my wife, in that context of that interview, you said twos often, uh, or sixes often, mistest as twos. Right. And she said, yes, I've been doing that my whole life. There that you so, go. So, uh, she was, uh, so that was, you, you were born out, you know, bore out proof positive. That, Great. There you that go. happens to lots of women. Yeah, she was in the, in her experience that was completely um, right on. That so, makes me kind of sad that there's this this. Uh, it makes me sad for twos, and it makes me sad for sixes. <laughs> you know that there's this image that um, that women are twoish, or that that would be good if they were helpful, and you know all that. But I think we're growing beyond some of that. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is that. Uh, generational change, I, I think generations can only accommodate a certain amount of change. And so some things that we could change or that it would be lovely to change don't make it in that cycle. They have to wait till the next time around, which I realize is not what we're here to talk about, but it's just something I've been thinking about. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, you know, it's funny because as we think about Barbara Bush, you know, blessed memory now, just most recently, I mean, yeah, you look at yeah. the you know differences in, in what, how women thought about who they were, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like opportunities. And, and also, you know, it's interesting. Somebody said that the Bushes were the last like presidents we had that were always old, you know, like, uh, that, yeah. That, yeah. you know, it, it, they get married young. They're just adults. So, it, it, whereas the, the presidents after that, you know, Obama, Clinton, Bush Jr., that these are all people that spent time sorting out identity and lots of, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's the old greatest generation model. It's just different. It's very different. Um, my husband is a, pastor uh, here in Dallas, and uh, President George W. Bush is in our parish, and um, he's just such a great guy. He seems like a great guy. He is a great guy, and um, he's really good to other folks, and it's probably my only chance in a lifetime to see a window of somebody on a personal level that I've known on a public stage, and it just reminds me over and over and over about how opinionated we are about people we don't know. Yeah. And how it seems, you know, I remember seeing he and, and Bill Clinton do a dialogue together like last year. And it's just interesting how tribalism and things go away when you get on a human to human level. Like I'm sure you, I know you run Enneagram workshops and, and things in retreats. And I'm sure that some of these tribal identities that people live by kind of dissipate in a context where you're relating at a different level. 
Absolutely. And we, uh, I have an apprentice program historically. I'm starting a new program called uh, a cohort where it's one year, but the apprentice program is three years. And people have to have some pretty good Enneagram wisdom on board to apply for those. And, you know, they walk in the room. They could be with me for two, three day weekends before they would ever find out what one another, what they do for a living or what sports teams they like. Or it changes the entire conversation because when you walk into our center, people say, what's your name and what's your number? Not what do you do? <laughs> yeah, that's a refreshing thing where where your identity is more in being than doing because I feel like generally we're reduced to role or task Absolutely. or occupation or those sorts of things. Right. Right. And then that directs the rest of the conversation. So when you ask somebody what their number is and they answer you, that directs the conversation. It's a completely different thing. Let me ask you this as someone who does is an Enneagram expert and does a lot of work you're on a plane, somebody asks you the inevitable, what do you do? And, you, you know, let's say you get talking about the Enneagram. They know nothing about it, right? What's your five minute, like, okay. Right. Here's, I mean, you get, you have, you do this pretty well in the intro to the book, but, but just, you know, how do you, how's that conversation play out on the plane? Um, it starts with, um, I've been trying to come up with an elevator speech for the last 25 years and I don't really have one, but I'll do the best I can. And then I say that I essentially um, try to teach people that there are nine different ways of seeing. And the fact that we all look at things and believe that we're having the same experience and that we're seeing the same thing is just not true. And that the good news is, I think, that there are only nine ways. And so we can learn to understand eight other patterns, eight other ways of seeing what's unfolding in front of us, when if it was a greater number than that, we never could. And that I uh, essentially teach people about um, ways of responding to what they see. And the wonderful thing about the Enneagram, which is the system that I teach, is that you can do something with it as opposed to just a result that tells you what your initials are. Or, and, I, you know, I, I think Berkman and uh, Myers-Briggs and all those uh, similar things have something to offer. And I just don't think it's anything like the Enneagram. So I try to discount people connecting it to Myers-Briggs by saying it's that and it's all of this. Um, and then people start to ask questions. And once people ask me questions about, you know, um, more about the Enneagram, then I kind of can unfold in a more teaching way. I just can't get it down to five minutes except to say that it's wisdom. It's nine ways of seeing. If we do the work, it makes the world a better place. It enhances our relationships. And it's the biggest aha moment ever about why we do the same things over and over, even when we don't want to. How often in that sort of elevator speech or, or airplane conversation does the person say, well, what's my way of seeing? Uh, they do generally, as soon as they know there are nine ways, they don't ask me what their way is. They ask me what the nine are. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. So they don't play the guessing game with me. They don't say, well, how do you think I see? They say, wow, nine ways. Can you tell me what they are? Well, that's fascinating. Now, you've written uh, your, another Enneagram book called The Road Back to You, but this is the path between us, an Enneagram journey to healthy relationships. And I, it, initially, you might think this is about marriage or dating, but you're talking about relationships comprehensively. Right, that this is for workplace, siblings, families, friends, 
nonprofits, the you know spouses. You're talking, you know, families, parents, and children. That this is a, a sort of. I mean, you're re, you're kind of revisiting the enneagram, thinking almost it seems like from the from the perspective of the type out and the people at the type, as opposed to sort of a little more of an internal book, which the, the, your previous work seemed a little more oriented to. Is that fair to say? That is fair, and I um, I'm so glad you brought it up. It makes me. Uh, aware that I, I might have uh, added or had a different subtitle if I had been aware that most people would just think, well, it's for marriage or it's for couples. It's for everybody. And I, I, I do think we did a good job pulling together examples from every, everybody. So it actually starts not with a married couple. And um, for every number, I tell a story, as you know, and the story is for people who work together, people who are married, parenting, they're across the board. I think we're in a relationship crisis culturally, globally, probably, but culturally for sure. And this is my effort to say we can all do better. Do you think the crisis is I mean, something like, you know, I remember Marva Dawn, a great author uh-huh. on, on spirituality and, and, and culture. She said, we're moving in this direction where we intimize our technology and technologize our intimacy. That's exactly right. And so, That's a great line. I, I'm trying. You were trying. You know, my iPad and computer. I'll talk to you. Oh, hi. Your watch. Oh, we're, you know, my watch tells me uh, good job on your fitness goals today. And you know, we're sort of, you know, our relationships are conducted over. You know, it's it's interesting how many people can't talk on the phone anymore and only text, and yet want to tell long stories over text messages, you know, a certain generations. It's, it's, it's just a fascinating thing where, where, where I think something about technology for all its marvels. I mean, it's strange how connected it makes us and yet how disconnected people feel all across the board. You know, my way of talking about, I'll, I'll just start with one. So I want to start with Facebook and just say that my way of talking about Facebook is it's the new Christmas letter. Mm hmm. You remember, you may be too young, but Christmas letters were my family's perfect and my life is perfect and we've had a perfect year. And here's a picture of our perfect family. And so I'm I'm troubled by and and there are two sides to everything. And we do a lot of work with Facebook to share about the Enneagram, to tell people where I'm teaching, all that. I'm, I'm all for that. I just don't want it to be a substitute for relationships because at best, uh, social media relationships are pseudo relationships. At best. And so my great hope is that we're going to be able to begin by using the Enneagram to look at a deeper level. You know, like one of the things I say to eights, nines and ones, because they pick up feelings in their gut about other people. And so I say to them, can you read uh, the world on your laptop or on your phone from your gut? Do you ever get a reaction in your gut? And the answer is no, they don't, that they have to be with people. So, you know, we can't undo where we are. The thing I think we have to do is start to talk about it reasonably. And what Enneagram does, it does a lot of things. But one thing that it does for sure is it's a conversation starter. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe we could, because I'm not sure how many of our listeners, I mean, many of them might know the Enneagram. There's a lot that probably haven't. And a few people who listen to this, I'm trying to convince to figure out their Enneagram type. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Great. So... Uh, so could we just talk, like, could you just like, could we walk through, like, like, I'm sure you have like the kind of quick spiel on the types, right? I mean, you do it really succinctly in the book, but like, yeah. 
on the fly. Like if you were just going to say, you know, Enneagram 101, here's the types and ha- here's, you know, ha- how they, you know, here's how they see the world kind of thing. You want me to run through them? Absolutely. All right. Ones are called the perfectionist. And they don't like that because they think they're in the world just trying to make things better. They don't see themselves as trying to perfect things. Steve Jobs one, is your one, right? Y- yeah, could be. He might be a three. I'm, I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I try not to type people unless they type themselves. So uh, Richard Rohr is a one on the Enneagram, self-identified for people who know his work. Um, so I think Gandhi was a one on the Enneagram. Uh, he didn't self-type, but I think that. So ones are people who um, are uh, always mindful of what's wrong. So when they walk into a room, they see what's missing, they see what's wrong, and they feel like it's their responsibility to fix it. When they wake up in the morning and they're brushing their teeth, they're concerned about the fact that they're going to make mistakes because they think it's not okay to make mistakes. And ones have there's a deal breaker with ones, which is that ones have a constant inner critic that literally criticizes them all the time and says, you should have done that different. You could have done better. You must do better next time. Um, I, uh, you know, I teach 40 minutes for every number when I'm teaching live. So um, I'm trying to pull the most important parts. And one of them would be this. Um, There are the seven deadly sins plus two are assigned one of them to each of the nine numbers. And the sin or the passion for ones is anger. But ones uh, don't think it's okay to be angry. So they stuff their anger and it kind of comes out as resentment. Ones don't think it's okay to take shortcuts. And they're the people who want to do everything uh, in order and the best way they can for the world to be a better, more ordered, more just place. Twos on the Enneagram are called the helper or the giver. And this is your type, right? Yeah. And when they walk into a room, they see who needs something. And they make their way in the world by trying to meet those needs. So they have poor boundaries because they don't stick to their schedule if somebody needs them. They believe that you won't want them unless they're able to sense and meet your needs. And twos are really good at that. And so they kind of make their way in the world um, believing that they're independent because they don't think they have any needs while meeting your needs. And uh, that's... um, boundaried it's a pretty good thing and when it's outside the boundaries it's kind of intrusive and uh, too much and people have a tendency to be a little off a little put off by that um twos are um, feeling people they feel first that's how they take in information is with feeling and then they try to do something about what they feel People like them a lot. They overextend themselves. They give too much. They return to their own lives with not much left. Threes on the Enneagram. You want me to keep going? Absolutely. All right. Threes on the Enneagram are um, the people who are trying to get the respect of other people because they want to be leaders. And they want you to want to follow them because they believe they can help you be the best that you can be. They are very image conscious along with twos and fours and their image conscious has to do with how they're viewed by other people. So threes will do things for external applause that they wouldn't do just for the satisfaction of doing it. We really like threes in American culture. I live in Dallas. Uh, Dallas is a three city. America is a three country. Threes are um, aware of feelings, but they set them aside because they're messy. And their big words are efficient and effective and 
always moving forward and being young and energetic and American business prototype is a three. And so it's hard for threes to do the, the work they need to do to be a little bit healthier because they're so appreciated in the culture for exactly how they are. I have a friend who's a three. He's a really good friend. And he says, you know, he's always trying to put me in his three self-improvement program. And so I call, I'll call him and I'll be like, guess what I did? I self-promoted today. I did this. will be very good. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Let me tell three is Parker Palmer self-identified so if you've never read Parker Palmer start with let your life speak and you will have read the work of a three uh if you want to read the work of a two of course you could read the path between us (laughs) (laughs) all right um by the way before we go on do you want me to let you know any of my needs or anything so you can right now meet them yeah I'm trying trying to meet this need on your podcast right now but you can send me a list later All right, fours are the most complex number on the Enneagram, and I think there are fewer fours than any other number. Um, Fours are people for whom uh, average is undesirable. Um, They don't kind of want the middle road of anything. They, When they're sad, they're too sad, and when they're happy, they're too happy. And um, they like texture. They need things to be multifaceted. And uh, their image is to be unique. They don't. Um, th- they don't want to be caught in the trap where they wear what we're all wearing and look like we all look and think like we all think. Um, their passion is envy, but we confuse envy and jealousy in the culture. And what they're really uh, struggling with is they don't want your house or your car or your job. What they want uh, and what they envy is your comfort in the world. They'd like to be comfortable in the world. And they find the world kind of tricky to navigate. And they worry a lot about abandonment, about people leaving. Relationships are super important to fours. But they do – I love your little subtype for them in the book. um, uh, Go away, but don't leave. Like, yeah. like kind of the fours do this kind of push pull thing, right? Where, where yes, they do. They kind of want space, and yet they want you to come back to them and 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 right. show them that you're that you're 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 in it to win it. Exactly, and and they do all of that because they're afraid they're going to lose you. So they push you away because they're afraid you're going to lose you. And then when you're far away, they're afraid they're going to lose you if they don't pull you back in. And so they just push and pull. Did you uh, find most Thomas- fours have abandonment issues? family systems yes absolutely absolutely a high percentage do or perceived abandonment you know they they imagine abandonment and they've experienced abandonment or perceived abandonment in childhood um fives actually are the number on the enneagram that has a measured amount of energy every day so they get the same amount every morning when they get up and every handshake every hello every errand, every phone call, every task costs them some of this measured energy. And they are, we, we usually refer to fives, they're called observers, but we kind of say, well, they're kind of aloof or uh, they seem kind of secretive or they're kind of hard to get to know. And all of that has to do with the fact that they have this limited amount of energy and they're trying to protect it. Um, and, and when they run out, it's, it's makes them feel very vulnerable and their energy is kind of like manna, you know, from heaven. You can't get any extra. If you save up, it's gone the next morning. So 
Every day they get the same amount and every day they live a, an intuitively measured life so that they have enough energy to get home. And they tend to be, but, these, are, these are your sort of, they often tend to be deep thinkers, good at kind right. of technical things. I mean, right? Like, I mean, there's this story I remember about Jimmy Carter who was saying, I don't know if he was a five or not, but this sounds so five. Like they were, they were contrasting Reagan who you could just put on the teleprompter tell a story and Reagan could yeah. just fill it with Carter when he was campaigning. He had stories on note cards he and his wife had, so he would know what to, and then he's tired at the end of a campaign stop and he just turns to Rosalind and holds her hand and says, Rosalind, 38. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> that's such a five sounding story. It's a, it's a, uh, my mother was a five and my best friend is a five. And I think that's where I, that's where my affection for fives comes from. But what I would say is that uh, they're not good at small talk and they don't like it. And I would also say that I think at least half and probably three-fourths of all the patents in D.C. are, are because they, um, once they get interested in something, they just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in order to find a solution. Sixes. I, I think half the world are sixes. I'm, I'm married to one of them. Yeah. The tradition I came through in teaching and learning um, Richard Rohr taught me uh, it, it believes that a high percentage of the people in the world are sixes. Now, there are other traditions. Helen Palmer tradition is is that there are about 10 percent in each number. I, I, I don't agree with that. She does super great work and uh, I respect her a lot, but I just don't agree with that thing. And the passion for sixes is fear. And it would be better described as anxiety because sixes are concerned about possible future events and sixes don't trust themselves. So they look to authority figures for um, answers and for what they should do. And, and it's in strange all, also are, are profoundly skeptical people too at the same time, right? They yes, they look are. to they authority and yet are also skeptics. That's right. They're focused on authority all the time, but half of them phobic six, there's a, there's two kinds of sixes and that doesn't happen in any other number. There are phobic sixes and counterphobic sixes, and both are afraid, and both are focused on authority figures. But counterphobic sixes are watching authority people to make sure that they're just and fair and that nobody gets cheated and that they do the right thing. And they're kind of looking to bring you down. Uh, and phobic sixes just adhere to authority, believing that it's and doing everything like you're supposed to do it. Um, I um, I think we're not nearly respectful enough of sixes. Sixes hold together all the groups that we belong to. They're not people who leave when they don't get their way. Sixes are people who are who believe in group projects. And they're the number on the Enneagram that's most concerned about the common good. And they don't need to be the star. They're, they're happy to do their part and kind of hope everybody else will do theirs. Um, I, I have a lot of admiration for sixes. And I think right now, culturally, this is kind of their time, sixes and nines. Sixes because they have the common good in mind. And I think we're kind of on the edge of losing a lot of that. So I, um, I'm trying to talk them into speaking up right now <laughs> when I have them in the room where I'm teaching. And, and, Seven, so do, you think, do you think it's also part of the moment too, in that, like, the anxiety the sixes feel? I mean, it seems like... We, we have more widespread anxiety and ever. than ever. And sixes understand anxiety. They do understand it. And so they're kind of prepared for it in a way that the rest of us are not, actually. 
Um, I, I've been teaching the Enneagram for 25 years to public audiences all over the country and beyond. And I can't remember a time in all those years when I ever said that I thought something was immoral uh, until now. And I am pretty much saying everywhere I speak that I think to manipulate with fear is immoral. And I particularly think that because of my understanding that half of the world is sixes. And there's an awful lot of that going on. It's just a lot going on. And uh, Rizzo and Hudson in their work did some great work around lost childhood messages, messages that we need to hear, but we don't hear much. And the lost message for sixes is you are safe. And that message is just nowhere in the culture right now. It's just not there. There's a great book just came out, Unafraid by uh, Adam Hamilton, pastor of UMC uh-huh. Church, Resurrection, biggest message yeah. church in the country. Really interesting guy. He was on the podcast. But he has, I mean, that book, Unafraid, is great. But he talks about how somebody in CNN was saying, you know, an anchor or somebody or somebody, you know, somewhere in CNN was saying, like, that's how we get ratings, fear. And, and, then, and, yeah. and then he had another political consultant was saying that that's the easiest thing to motivate voters. Like, if we, exactly. can, if we can make them afraid, uh, right and left. I mean, if, you, if, you can, if we can make people afraid, then they might be motivated enough to actually show up and vote. Right. Or they use fear to get them to vote a certain way. Right, right. That manipulation I don't like either. Like the crime so, rate, the crime rate has drastically dropped, right? right Over the past but nobody, but nobody, nobody talks about it. It's, oh, yeah. if it murders and here and there, it's, it's, you, just, you just conjure up anxiety. Exactly, exactly. So my husband's a United Methodist pastor, and I think our church is the second or third largest in the country. And um, it's, it's very interesting to me to be a pastor's wife and to be invited to speak in lots of churches, to, to be able to find out, uh, you know, their denominations in a way, I'm not going to name them, that are uh, kind of fear based, you know. So I think we got some work around that to do. Um, a lot of work, maybe. Uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero, by the way, was a self-identified six on the Enneagram. And there's a movie uh, titled Romero with Raul Julia. Great film. It's a great film. And in that movie, you can watch him uh, move from being kind of an unhealthy phobic six to growing into being a healthy counterphobic six. Now, I'm not saying that phobic sixes are unhealthy. I'm just saying that's the journey for him in that movie. So if you love a six or if you're interested in sixes, that would be a good movie for you to watch, how he manages. All that, that is so well said, too. Yeah, his journey it's, and it's not an ideological journey as no. much as just a passion and sensitivity and, and dealing with the anxiety of, you know, about doing, you know, authority and doing the right thing. And yeah, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. film. Yeah. It, it's also about, am I going to break the church rule for this person? Am I going to, is the person standing in front of me going to be more important to me than all of this structure that surrounds me? It's, it's fascinating, I think. Okay, uh, I, and before I move on, uh, I think it's hard to understand what fives look like in the world. So uh, Deborah Winger is the mother of the bride in the movie Rachel's Getting Married. And she perfectly represents uh, fives uh, in how she behaves, in the things that she says, in the way that she manages her daughters. She's just a five. It's fascinating to watch. So that might be helpful to people who listen to um, now it's party time. Okay. We're coming to seven. We're coming to seven. It is party time. And you know what sevens would say is that they, they're they happy to uh, 
to uh, contribute to the life of the party, but there's a deeper side to them that they always want people to be expecting and to look for. And um, sevens are um, people on the Enneagram who have a half range of emotion, which is the happy half, mixed with a lot of um, good thinking. They know where systems overlap and they're smart. But people don't generally ask them what they think about things. They just want to be entertained by them. They want them to be cute and they want them to perform. And um, for sevens, what they really would like to have in life is satisfaction. That's what they're looking for. But they settle for more since they can't seem to. So so the seven is like hashtag FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You say something in the book, too, in this book about sevens. You say that. Something you know, they are anxiety and fear oriented too, but fear of right. not paying music. But most people, including themselves, are often unaware of it, like because they right. they they're kind of happy go lucky and usually have pretty good energy. And 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 you should, well, you don't look like somebody that's you know you don't look like a Woody Allen neurotic driven by you exactly. know like you know you you don't you know. But that's of course because they're suppressing a lot of that, right? It is because of that, and it's because once they feel fear, they manage their fear. So fives manage their fear with gathering knowledge and information. Sixes manage their fear with worst case scenario planning. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then they have a plan for it and then they stay vigilant and prepared. Sevens manage their fear with a smokescreen of activity and with options. Right. When you see and a they, seven make, making plans, planning out their best life now, you know right. they're probably on shaky ground. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. And you can also always suggest to sevens that they should have um, a a career that has options because with no options, they uh, they just can't do the same thing over and over and over. They can't do it. They just can't do it. Um, Eights. I think eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram, uh, particularly female. I've heard you say in a podcast before that. So eights are smart and aggressive and quick. And um, they like to lead and they get leadership positions before they seek them. And they come on brutally. They're brutally honest. I don't think they have any idea how they affect other people. And I'm so sad to say that culturally we really love male eights. And if you put all those same gifts and graces in a female, she's a bitch. That's what we refer to her as. And that we've got to work on. I've heard you say, I think in a podcast that eights are the only type for whom they, they don't think the golden rule is true. Like, look, I treat people the way I'd like to be treated. And, they, and eights almost, I mean, I, I've had the, I've had some uh, interactions with, with eights where I knew they were eights and I, I've sort of aggressively come at them jokingly and they love it. Like they yeah, kind of, that that's their, you know, when an eights kind of is pushier in your face that's it's a cry for intimacy right i mean exactly. like and if you don't push back they'll move on that's exactly right and if you don't have your own energy they don't even see you so actually that story came from my daughter she's an eight my oldest daughter's an eight she's uh, 40 almost and uh she called me one morning and she said mom she's known the enneagram for more than half of her life and she does some teaching now too and she called me one morning and she said mom i don't think the golden rule applies to eights yeah. And I said, I said, why? And she said, cause I treat people exactly like I want to be treated and it doesn't usually go well. <laughs> and Donald Trump strikes me as, as a super disintegrated eight. You think? 
No. No? What do you think? I think he's a super disintegrated three. Okay. All right. That's why he's always saying, we have the best know, and the beautiful, the hugest, it's wonderful. Well, that's part of it. But also, threes can adapt to whatever the audience is. All threes can do that. Like, they can be the poster child for every group that they belong to, which is a, a gift that surely has two sides. And then we come to the round the, the horn to the peaceable kingdom, right? Number nine. Yeah. No kidding. So, you know, if you've listened to me before that I'm crazy in love with my husband and we've been married for 30 years and I'm just crazy about him and he's a nine on the Enneagram. And I think that's partially why nines are just peaceful and they they kind of bring this peace to whatever they come to. And they're the most stubborn number on the Enneagram. And they only listen to two thirds of what's said. And they're, you know, there's that. But nines are uh, natural mediators. And the reason for that is how they see. Nine see two sides to everything, and that's a gift and a problem. And um, they're synthesizers. Nines are people who sit and listen to everybody in a committee meeting and then can come up with one or two lines that kind of could make everybody happy. They're really, really good at leading us to consensus. And um, they try. They have the least energy. Eights have the most energy of all the numbers. Nines have the least energy of all the numbers. And fives have a measured amount. And the reason that nines have the least energy is because they're boundaried internally and externally. And they try to keep in anything that's going to cause conflict. And they try to keep out anything that would steal their peace. So they're tired a lot. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabadian, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Now, could you say a word about the triads? Sure. Um, because you actually lay this book out, right? You, like you did with The Road Back to You, which I think, uh, one of the things I, I've found incredibly helpful when I read your first book was, when you said most books just start one, two, three, four, kind of how we laid them out. But the problem is if you do that with a book, then you've switched triads already. You've been in two triads. And I thought, 
when I read your first book, that, I found that it's so insightful. It's mm. one of those things that's kind of like, when you think about it, I'm thinking, well, why? Of course, of course this is true. And yet I yeah. had never read it before. I had never seen a book laid out like that before. Me either. But I've been teaching that way. I've been teaching starting with eights for at least 20 years so that I could stay in the triads. All right. So eight, nine, one is the gut triad. And it's also called the intuitive triad, although I struggle with that a little bit. It's also called the body centered triad. And I teach it around anger because all three numbers struggle with anger. So eight angers straight up and then it's over. Nine angers passive aggressive and one anger is resentment. Um, twos, threes and fours are in the heart triad, also called uh, the emotional triad. Um, it's also sometimes called the relationship triad. And it's interesting because if you read all of the authors who came before me, um, they differ. The, the people I respect the most differ on what we should call the heart triad. I uh, went with the feeling triad because it was easy for me to distinguish the three numbers by talking about how they manage feelings. So twos feel other people's feelings. It's very difficult for them to know what they feel. Threes have a feeling and then they set it aside so it won't mess them up and won't take too much time. And they kind of plan to deal with it later, but they seldom do. And fours exacerbate feelings. So if they're sad, they want to be sadder. And if they're happy, they want to be happier. And then um, you move around to the five, six, seven, and that's the thinking triad or the head centered triad. And I teach those in relationship to fear, which I, I just went through a minute ago. And essentially, the Enneagram was revived by uh, a man named Gurdjieff. And then uh, Oscar Ichazo and Claudio Naranjo added to that. And that was in the 40s. And there was a man named Maurice Nicole who was doing some work um, in England. And he uh, did some writing around the fact that there are three centers of intelligence um, and that we respond to all stimulus with either what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do? And when you lay Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, then you get a thinking, feeling, and doing triad. And so that's pretty great. That's a, a pretty great way to begin to establish where you are on the Enneagram. And it seems like there's this parallel in the triads. There's like an externalizer, a sort uh -huh. of suppressor, and an internalizer. Right? That's right. So you have right. the kind of like, where, whereas one is the sort of internalizer in the, in the, in the gut triad, or, or kind of, and then, but it looks, it, it's, it's a similar process, but looks different for a four who is, you know, for emotion, you know, is, is doing a kind yeah. of exacerbating, like internalizing that, you know, that, or that, um, yeah, th that's a fascinating thing. When I, when I read your first book, I thought, wow, I really understand, like, I'm seeing the sort of these recurring patterns in the triads that, that plays out differently, diff based yes. on the core motivations, but that's exactly right. But it's easier that's to learn that way. Yes, it is easier. And I, I think, um, so, so like if we took two, three, four, uh, for twos, feelings are externalized for fours, feelings are internalized. And for threes, they go both ways. And it, it, if you take five, six, seven for sixes, fear is, I mean, for fives, fear is externalized. They're kind of afraid of what's happening in the outer world. Sevens are afraid of what's happening in their heads and in their minds and that they're going to get stuck in things and they have all that going on in their heads and sixes have both and um 
for eights, nines, and ones, eight is an externalized version of anger, and ones are mad at themselves first, so it's internalized. And for nines, it's both ways. And then there's this other fascinating people have to have done a good bit of Enneagram work to know about, and that's called stances. Yeah, this was new to me. This was not in your first book. No. And I, I didn't talk about it a lot in this book, but I, I'm going to talk about it a lot in my next one. You've sold me already. I pre-order that baby. Uh, okay. Well, I, I'm, I haven't even started writing yet, but I'm, I'm all about it because uh, stances come from the idea uh, and from the work of Karen Horney, who said that we either she's German American and also was working in the 40s and 50s. And she says we either move against people or away from people or, or toward people. And if you put Karen Horney's work on top of the Enneagram, then what you get is that in each one of the triads, there's one person who moves away from one number that moves away from people, one number that moves toward and one number that moves against. It's fascinating. And I want to say one more thing. And that is that I don't argue about the Enneagram with anybody. You know, people say, I don't know about that. And I don't want to put people in a box. My answer to that is I just show you the box that you're already in. But, but what I want people to recognize is if you don't like the Enneagram, it's okay. You, you don't have to. And I wouldn't argue about where it's from or who did it or why or when. I just simply say it's true. It's just true. And the more you learn about it, the more you know how true it is. Yeah. One of the things I, I love about the Enneagram is that, you know, when I've taught undergrads philosophy and things like that, I, I, you know, I put out, you know, the, the true, the good and the beautiful or, or epistemology, you know, metaphysics and, you know, value theory or whatever. And well, which one do you start with? Well, let's start with, you know, metaphysics. What's real? Well, how do you know whether to start with rocks or with organic beings? Well, that's value theory. Or let's start with epistemology and you start thinking about how you know what you know. But then you can't do that much without thinking about actually the world you're knowing. And you're, you know, how these things, how, how really we make these discrete categories for the purposes of learning categorization. But then the more you learn, you realize the artificialness of the categories, the big theological term be perichoresis, right? You know, the inter right. interpenetration. And that, I love the Enneagram because you're always in other types and how you integrate and disintegrate to other types. And you, and, and so it just strikes me as, as how reality is, right? That, that everything's so interconnected. Right. Uh, you know, right. that, that, it just strikes me as, 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 as true to how the world is kind of put together. And it's the only that I'm aware of that isn't static with all that movement that you're talking about. It's a non-static system. So I, I think that's um, pretty great too. Now, my wife says why she liked the Enneagram more than Myers-Briggs, the other tests she's done, is she said something akin to the fact that a lot of these other tests blow smoke up your ass. And the Enneagram mm -hmm. just kind of says, hey, who you are, you've got some pretty like uh, deep motivations that often come out of early kind of brokenness, but there's hope. <laughs> there is a lot of hope with the Enneagram. And you know, the other thing I would say is that um, I, I haven't talked with you about this, I don't think, ever. But um, I just want you to know that I'm totally opposed to the test. I, I've heard you say that. I, I've heard you say that. And and also what's interesting is you say in the book that the, the way I know how everyone's going to read this book, you're going to go right to your number first. But yeah. I'd encourage you to read the whole book. And, 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 know, and, and you often say you won't need the test if you just read the book or go to one of your seminars, right? 
You'll know once you get to know the Enneagram, you'll know what you are. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, it was taught orally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And everybody's looking for a shortcut. And I just don't think there is one. I, I think people need to read it or about each number or they need to hear it taught orally. And I, I there, there are, uh, I, I think a test could be one way of um, examining the Enneagram. But we just have too many examples of too many people who um, get two or three numbers when they take the test. And they're not even numbers that are related to one another. They're, they're not even numbers I could help somebody work through. And when I teach, since I've been teaching for so long, you know, I've been able to redo my notes over and over and over. And I try hard to say things, the same thing two or three ways so that I know that everybody can hear it. Because all of this work that we do and can do with the Enneagram, if you're doing it with, with the idea that you're a, a number that you're not, then you're lost at the get-go. So, you know, lots of corporations invite me to come teach, and they offer me a lot of money to come do it if I'll just do it in a half a day instead of a whole day. And my answer is no. Well, tell them I'll take well, the money. I, I know a little bit about the Enneagram. I'll take it for the <laughs> half day. <laughs> I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> I'm going to tell them to give me a whole day. Give me a whole day, and people will leave knowing their number. Or read this book. The, the Road Back to Grammar, great grammar, if you want to know any grammar. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because with this book, as I was reading through it, I you could also start here. I mean, you know, like it, it, it doesn't seem to me that it's a sequel book or something. It, it's, it's the Enneagram through a different set of lenses, but it strikes me that this would be just fine for someone's first Enneagram book. I think it could stand alone. I, I do think that. I think it's better. If you uh, uh, if you're sure about your number, but I do think it can stand alone. I agree. Do you think the problem with tests is that also you kind of there's the pressure to give the right answer? Like, you know, like no, when, you're, when you're taking a test, you're kind of like, OK, well, I mean, it, it, it you could have rush reactions or something. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. But I think the main reason is your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. And I think the tests primarily measure and, and identify number based on behavior. Yeah, it's probably much harder to write a motivation-oriented test. Tests. I think um, the efforts are good. The, the long tests are a good effort. And I think combined with other work, they could be helpful. I really struggle with people who only identify by the test. And in our work, we, we just have a lot of people who, once they hear it taught orally, uh, say, oh, I, I'm, I thought I was that, but I'm really for sure this number. One of the things I think is a real gift of this book is you do a great job at the end of each type talking about how the types interact with the type. And yeah. I feel like this is a real gift. I'm really proud of that. Yeah, if you want to understand... Friends or coworkers or right. a lover or a spouse or your kids better. I mean, this is just, it's well laid out. It's super readable. And I just, it's, it's incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. I, that's the best feedback I could get. You know, I'm hoping that leaders uh, of groups will c- kind of keep it on their desks so they know how to communicate with the different numbers and, 
how to uh, bridge difference. And I hope couples will just keep going back and going back and going back to how other numbers can hear. You know, it doesn't matter what you say if the other person can't hear you. And and I I don't think it's complex. I, I worked very hard for it to be accessible to everybody. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think this book and your previous book are, are the most accessible Enneagram books I've read. And again, original too, again, with the way they're laid out. I mean, there's also things there that I think aren't in any other things I've read, but I, but I do think they are incredibly accessible without being thin. I mean, they're substantive books too. Yeah. I, I, part of the reason for that is that um, when I first started getting invitations about 15 years ago to speak at big events and, you know, do big things, the first few times I had a really big audience or I was going to speak at a, a, a prestigious place, I uh, walked off stage and my husband said to me, you know, that was good, but I, you're better when you're just you. Because mm. I was trying to be smart. You know, I was trying to I was trying to show off and let everybody know that I'm, I, I really know a lot of things. And I've decided that smart is being able to make what I know accessible to people who are learning. And I stopped trying to show off about 15 years ago and started just teaching. And it's, I think it's, it's a good thing. I think it's been real helpful to people. And I'm, I'm my next book, or if I uh, go the direction I'm thinking right now, is going to be a deeper dive, but it's still going to be really accessible. Yeah, I find if, if, if you've got to use jargon and stuff, then you don't know the concepts as well. Like right. the, the people that know stuff really well are not dependent on jargon right an idiosyncratic right. language they're able to translate and speak in in common parlance exactly and i you know one of my favorite moments in my career happens uh, at least once or twice a month and that is if i'm going to work with a big church staff somewhere if i'm going to work with a group at a university or in a hospital and they call and say well who should come my answer is everybody you know who on the staff should come everybody should come yeah, because we're all, yeah, we're all, uh, this is the whole range of the human condition, right? The Enneagram. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely yeah. for everybody. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's accessible for everybody. Suzanne, thanks for writing this book and for talking with me about it. The path between us, any, an Enneagram journey to healthy relationships. I love it. I hope every listener buys it and I'm going to send several people this interview today. So they <laughs> try to get them to get their Enneagram type. Great. That'd be so great. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds, go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find Thanks all the again information. to Suzanne for coming yeah. on the podcast. Please do check out her book, The Path Between Us, An Enneagram Journey to Healthy Relationships. It's a great read. You won't forget it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.